Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. And the fig tree. Some of us might be uh, familiar with that story. And the reason why I chose that is because as we approach this Easter season, um, I wanted to choose a story or event in Jesus' life that is within the week leading up to the crucifixion. And just having a bit of a dig down into what happened there, what does it mean, and see what we can uh, take out of it. And so I've named it Jesus Christ, Messiah, Saviour, Killer of Trees. Just to poke a bit of fun, just in tongue-in-cheek, a bit of a provocative uh, title there. And it's the best picture I could find online <laughs> of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, he's, he's blonde. Yeah. And everyone's staring at him killing a fig tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's already shadowing the, the blood that's to come. <laughs> okay, anyway, so this, uh, this story is actually found in two of the Gospels, uh, both in Matthew and Mark. I'm going to be reading this from Mark's Gospel because it gives us a little bit more detail to chew on. So, here we go. Uh, Mark 11... 12 to 25. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And then we have dot, dot, dot. And that's because I've cut out the bit where Jesus now then goes into the temple, sees all the money handlers and the merchants, flips the tables, clears house, drives everyone out, and then leaves the temple. And this is where we pick back up. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." And so in this story, this strange little story, we see Jesus, he's hungry, sees a fig tree, no figs, appears to have some kind of tantrum, kills a tree, goes into the temple, wrecks the temple, comes back out. And so it's a strange story that we find. It seems a bit out of character for Jesus. But it's in there for a reason, isn't it? Because everything in Scripture is in there for a reason. The Bible doesn't waffle. Sometimes it feels like it might waffle a bit, but if it's in there, it's got to be in there for some kind of reason. And so I want to dig down and find out what are the reasons. Why was this strange little passage included into Scripture? Not just one, but two of the Gospels. Because this was an intentional act of Christ, wasn't it? He actually says he meant for the disciples to hear him. He did it loudly enough for him, uh, for them to hear him actually say this to the tree, to curse the tree. And it's not like these, you know, he's cursing trees as they go along and as the disciples walk, there's just a row of dead trees behind them as Jesus is just touching them and cursing them, they're dying. No, this was an intentional act for one reason or another. 
And so what could this mean? Well, as I was uh, reading into this and looking at it, into it, there are four potential meanings that we can draw out of this. And in abstract, if you go to the next slide, we've got faith, the mountain, the barren tree, and the tree of death. And so I'm just going to briefly go through each of these meanings and what we can draw out of them and what they're trying to get to uh, here as well and then uh, wrap it up at the end. So the first one, faith. And this is probably the most obvious one for us here in the 21st century in the Western world and our understanding of God and the context that we read the Bible. And because this is probably the most obvious one to come across, this is going off pretty much what Jesus is saying. After the tree dies and his disciples notice it, he talks about faith and the power of faith. And this is a message that we've heard preached in churches a lot. Have faith. Believe what you are praying for. Believe what you are asking God for and it will be done for you. And that can be incredibly encouraging to know that we live and worship and love and are under a God that is a big God. Not just a small God, but a God who can provide for us. He looks after us. He protects us. His love, his embrace reaches as far as the east is from the west we live for a god of plenty of abundance of overflowing he answers our prayers this is not a small god that we worship it's not one that you know we don't know if he can really do anything or has power over anything this is an amazing big god we love and worship and there is encouragement in that now, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I know how prayer works and the mysteries of God because sometimes I've prayed half-heartedly for things and God seemed to have answered those prayers. Other times, I've prayed with all my might and strength for days, sometimes nights on end, and heard nothing back. I don't know what it takes exactly to move the hand of God. I haven't worked out the formula, and if you have, please let me know. <laughs> but... Regardless of that, we do worship and love a big God. So it's that whole understanding, that uh, statement of faith is this first uh, message we can glean from this story about the fig tree. So the second one, the mountain. And this is also taken from what Jesus says after his disciples recognize that the fig tree has actually died. And Jesus here, if you look, if you actually go back to the uh, scripture, Dan, he says, if you tell this mountain, and so he's talking about a specific mountain. It's not just a mountain. So it's not necessarily saying we can just walk up and say to Mount Kira, throw yourself into the ocean and Mount Kira will go, be thrown into the ocean. He's talking about a specific mountain here. And there's actually two pools of thought on which mountain he's talking about. So the first one is the Mount of Olives. And this is just east of Jerusalem, east of the temple. And it actually says that Jesus was leaving Bethany which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus would have had to cross over the mountain to get to the temple in Jerusalem. So they're very familiar with it, very famous mountain. You can probably see it from Jerusalem, and they just cross it. So it's likely he was talking about the Mount of Olives. Or the other pool of thought is this is more metaphorical. And the mountain he's talking about is actually the temple itself. The temple in Jerusalem is often referred to as a mountain. It's like Zion, the city on the hill. However, regardless which pool of thought that you're subscribing to, it's pretty much the same message. This is one about salvation. And so if you subscribe to the one he's talking about, the Mount of Olives, then chances are Jesus is 
talking about or, or uh, referring to Zechariah 14. That's the other time you see the Mount of Olives being destroyed. Zechariah 14. He talks about God destroying the mountain of olives uh, to save his people from invaders. So he splits the mountain of olives in two so his people can have safe passage through it. Similar, I think it's echoing uh, the time of Moses and going through the Red Sea as they were being chased by the Egyptians. And so the Mount of Olives being destroyed is one uh, interpretation there. If it was the temple, the only time the Jews would actually want to see the temple destroyed is when the temple has accomplished its purpose here on earth. And so that means God and man have now finally been reunited again. That is the only reason why they want to destroy the temple and have it thrown into the sea. But regardless which one you are looking at, we need to understand the context of the Jewish people when they heard Jesus say this, because the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. They were an oppressed people. They were being jailed. They were being locked up. They were being beaten. They were being murdered. And so what do you ask God for when you are oppressed? What do you ask God for when you have an enemy standing with his boot on your neck? You're not asking for a new car or riches or your team to win the footy. You're asking for salvation from your oppressors. That is the, the ultimate request. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here. Not necessarily ask for whatever you want and he'll give it to you. I think he's saying, dare, dare you ask for the ultimate request, salvation, and it will be yours. But again, this is something of the spirit, not necessarily uh, the salvation from the Roman occupiers at the time. And so... Understanding this, we get a bit of a different uh, look at what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, throw the mountain into the ocean. Uh, number three, and this is the barren tree. And so, this is actually a very popular interpretation of the scripture. And you read most commentaries, and I'll probably say something about this as well. And so, the fig tree, in this sense, is a metaphor for either the Jews themselves or at least the temple, the Jewish temple. Because throughout Scripture, the Israelites, the Jews, they're often referred to as the fig or the fig tree. It's a symbolic of the Jewish people. And so throughout Scripture, there's many verses like this. I'll just pick one quick short one to read out to you here. Hosea 9.10, it says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, and then what does he see when he enters the temple? He sees it being occupied by money changers and merchants. And we assume that they are cheating people out of their money, they're doing dishonest trades. And we, we gather that because Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. But that's not actually what the writers, Matthew and Mark, the gospel writers actually are saying that are happening. I mean, it might be happening, but this is what most people assume, almost theologians have assumed is happening. You see... The Jewish temple, the architecture, there's, it's, it's made of a series of circles. And so the innermost circle is the Holy of Holies. So that's where God resides, behind the veil. The next circle out is for the Levite priests. The next circle out after that is for the common Jewish man to come, not woman, man only, <laughs> uh, to make their sacrifices and to pray to God. And then the outer circle, the outermost circle, is reserved for the women and the Gentiles. And that's important because... The whole point of the Jewish people of, of Israel, as per the Abrahamic covenant, was to point all other nations towards God. 
And so in the temple, there had to be a space for them. Now, granted, it's the outermost space, furthest away from God, as I understood it, but it was a space there nonetheless. However, these merchants that had set up shop, it is understood that they had taken up that whole outside area for themselves to sell their you know, doves and lambs and other sacrificial wares for the people to come in to visit the temple. And so in this case, in this sense, the temple was not actually working as God intended it to. It wasn't drawing outsiders in to the embrace of God. It, in fact, it was pushing people away because it had not made room for them. And so just like Jesus was, went and saw the fig tree and saw it was in, it was in um, well, it wasn't in bloom, but it had green, luscious leaves. It looked amazing, but when he went to it, it was barren and fruitless. He judged the tree, and in the same way, he's judging the temple, because although it might be all show and all uh, looked amazing and things like that, lots of people around and the merchants, it looks like a hive of energy. In reality, it was actually fruitless. It was not doing what it was set out to do. And so Jesus judged the temple just like he judged the tree. And then finally, this is probably the interesting one that you're wondering about, the tree of death. <laughs> what does that mean? And so this is the fourth meaning that I'm aware of. And there, look, there may be many other meanings that I'm not aware of, but I think these are the uh, big four that I came across. And this one takes us deeper into Jewish symbolism. And we need to do this because things don't actually line up when we look at this story in comparison to the rest of the miraculous things that Jesus did. You see, Jesus killing this tree is actually the only violent act we actually see him do in all the Gospels. It's the only miracle Jesus does that actually involves judgment and punishment, and so it is unique within itself. It's the, if this was in line with the other stories or the other miracles of Christ, we'd expect something different. You see, when Jesus would come across someone who was sick, he didn't kill them. <laughs> he didn't put them out of their misery. No, he reached out and he healed them. When Jesus came across someone who was hungry, he would feed them. He fed the masses out of a few loaves and a few fish. When he came across the outcast, the lonely, he would invite them in. Whenever Jesus came across any kind of lack or poverty or fragility or famine or anything lacking, any void, he would fill it within himself and give and give and give out a life. But what's he do when he sees this tree? He doesn't reach out a healing hand and touch a tree and it grows the most luscious figs you've ever seen outside of fig season. That's what we'd expect him to do, a miracle upon miracles. But no, he kills this thing. So there's something going on here. Jesus hates figs. <laughs> it's the big takeaway here. The end. <laughs> no, so I think a clue to this can actually be found in some other ancient Jewish texts. And one I've come across is actually not part of the Torah at all. This one is actually a book called The Life of Adam and Eve. And now, like I said, it's not part of the Torah, but any good Jew going to Jew school, or whatever they call it, <laughs> would be aware of this text. This was an ancient text believed to be written by Moses as well. And it is, um, it's actually from a larger book called The Revelation of Moses as well. And in this section of the text, it talks about, well, this is Eve's, Understand This is Eve's perspective of what happened after she ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. And so this is chapter 20 of the life of Adam and Eve. Eve said, At that very moment my eyes were opened, and I knew that I was naked of the righteousness which I had been clothed. I looked for leaves so that I might cover my shame. 
but I did not find any from the tree of paradise, except for those on the, of the fig tree only. And I took its leaves and made for myself skirts. They were the same plants of which I ate. And so, in Jewish tradition, in their understanding, the fig tree was the tree of good and evil, also known as the tree of death. And so, through eating the fig is how sin came into the world. Now, we can easily get caught up as, oh, is this proof that the tree of good and evil is actually a fig tree? Because all my Sunday school books showed it was an apple tree, and they can't be wrong. This isn't proof one way or another of that. And it's really probably irrelevant how literal or accurate we think this text actually is, or, or even the book of Genesis For example, the important thing here is the imagery understood by the common Jew at the time. And they understood the fig tree to be also the tree of death. And so Christ came into this world not to destroy but to give life. In fact, the only thing Christ came to kill was death itself. And through his sacrifice on the cross, it was the death of death and in in the spiritual sense. And that is why he goes up to the fig tree and this symbol of death and says to it, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. It's interesting, isn't it? Through Adam, sin entered the world and through Jesus, who is the new Adam, it will be destroyed with his death on the cross. It will be the the final death. The end of the separation between God and man. Adam was seduced by the fig tree and by eating it, he cursed all the generations after him, but Christ killed the fig tree, this symbolic fig tree, and offered salvation to all those that came before him and all those who will come after him as well. And so this is Jesus foreshadowing, just like we watch a movie and there's foreshadowing of what's to happen, foreshadowing of what's going to be coming in just a few days' time with his death on the cross. And that's why I think he made sure his his disciples actually heard him say it. But it's not really for the disciples, is it? Because they wouldn't be able to make this connection. They, They could barely understand that he was going to die. And so he did this for the people that will come after him, for the rabbis, the Jews that would talk about what they heard Jesus saying, these miracles that they saw him do. He did it for the theologians, the scholars, for you and me who analyze these passages of scripture and debate Jesus' actions for the years, decades, centuries to come. And so now I've given you four possible meanings for this story about Jesus and the fig tree. And you're probably wondering, well, which one's correct? Because there's really some contrasting images here. Is the fig tree a symbol of the prosperity of Israel or is it the symbol of death? It's like two opposite things there. And so which one's right? Well, I'd say I think they're both right. I think actually all four of these are potentially right. But I, I get that's also hard to grasp as well because we live in a different time. We live in a scientific age. We live in a time where with our understanding of how things are there, is meaning, and meaning is exclusive. If this means this, all other potential meanings must be false. We call this fact. And so we like to have our facts because it wraps everything up in a nice, neat little package, and we understand this, and we can disregard everything else around it as well. We see this all the time, you know, in the media. We see it in the way we we talk to each other. Um, it's, It's just the way we understand the world around us. This is our context. And so just a few examples, uh, when Einstein presented his famous formula to convert mass into energy, E equals MC square, we, under, well, other 
physicists understand, <laughs> I barely understand it, other physicists understand what he's getting at. He even wrote the mathematical equation, so we knew exactly what he meant. There was no ifs or buts, or maybe he means something else. No, this is exactly what he meant. When our premiers enforce another lockdown, because we've had another outbreak, we know 1.5 metres means 1.5 metres. We, mean, we know wearing a mask at Coles means wearing a mask at Coles. There's no doubt about what they're saying. We, we may not like it. Some of us might not even do it. But we know exactly what they mean. <laughs> I can't believe I wrote this last one. And when Fung says to me, not tonight, I have a headache. <laughs> I know exactly what she means. <laughs> she, um, there's no... Well, she says no from this angle, but if I approach her from this other angle, maybe, no, it's crystal clear I know exactly what she means. We like to have our facts in order. But the Jewish rabbis did not see the world in such contrast. And let's not forget, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Much of what they said or did was, was actually said to be pondered upon, chewed on discussed, debated, to be sat with. You see, in the Jewish context, so many things had multiple meanings. And even their vocabulary consisted of less words than the English vernacular. And so words, sayings, especially imagery and symbolism, always came with multiple interpretations. And each of these could be considered correct. And actually, that word correct is probably not even the right one. They're all potentially viable options to what they mean. And they can mean different things to different people in different circumstances from different times as well. And that doesn't mean that anything goes. I know some of us feel like, well, it has to mean this, you know, it's one way Jesus. And yes, absolutely. It doesn't mean we go off in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways and start cults and go off on weird tangents. We need to do this with wisdom. We need to discuss and chew on this together as well because the group think helps self-critique and help us work out what is the scripture saying, what multiple things could scripture be saying from certain passages, and we do this in wisdom, and we do this together. And so I think this is why Jesus really gave us a straightforward answer. He spoke in parables and mysteries, and while it might be frustrating when we just want to know what that scripture says, we can also find ourselves, as we chew on it, in a journey of discovery as we wrestle with what it says, as we look at the different nuances of the Bible, its imagery, and try to understand what it means, what can be said here from God. Imagine if one day we had worked out everything that the Bible had said. We gleaned all the wisdom from the Bible, from Scripture, and we knew there was nothing else left to find out. It would be like reading a knock-knock joke book for the second time. You know all the answers. It's, there's no point anymore. Or if we had finally worked out all the mysteries of God and we understood all of his wisdom as God understood his wisdom, would God even still be God? The fact that there's always more to come back to and discover gives scripture an eternal life of its own. And this is how the Jews would approach scripture. They, they said they would dance with it, which I think is beautiful. And so when we look at this passage about Jesus and the fig tree, or we look at other passages of scripture, we need to look what is in ourselves. Where are we coming from? And what is God saying in this as well? How are we approaching the scripture and how is God approaching us as well? And so in this example, maybe it's the first one. Maybe it's the first interpretation that we went through, the one of faith that might resonate with you. And just knowing that 
our God is so big and he can provide for us. And just like scripture says, as we dwell with God, nothing, not life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Or maybe it's that third interpretation that will resonate with you, that third one about the barren tree. And what areas of your life are feeling fruitless at the moment? What areas of religion are feeling fruitless with you? Because sometimes we just do something out of habit or because we feel we need to do it. And so we just keep doing the same thing again and again and again and we're feeling like it's getting us nowhere. And so it might be like a, a devotional that we just keep pushing through even though we're just, it's just feeling like a chore. Or maybe it is this, you've been praying the same way for decades maybe. <laughs> And it's just feeling dry and you feel like you haven't had that connection with God. Maybe it's time to find a new way to, um, to interact with God. Now, this doesn't mean we just throw everything out. But there are so many ways. We have such a big and vast and amazing God. There are so many ways to connect with him. And, and that's the great thing that I think we do with, at the, in the morning services. We, if you haven't been to one before, we try different things. And some of them you might absolutely hate and go, I'm never going to do that again. But you might also find a little gem in there as well, something that breathes life into your spiritual walk with God and re-energizes and resuscitates what you once had. And we've also got wild church coming. Don't know what that's going to look like yet, but it's going to be outside. Um, I was thinking about it, and I think, well, in my head, I, I kept getting images of Lord of the Flies. So we're running through the bush naked with spears made out of sticks. It's not going to be like that, probably. No? No nakedness. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm sure it will be amazing. <laughs> or maybe it's that fourth interpretation that resonates with you and you just want to dwell on that gift of eternal life brought in through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And we all know it. We know Christ died for our sins. We hear it preached all the time, but it is the foundation of our faith. But how often do we actually allow the weight of what happened that Jesus did, the weight of what Jesus did on the cross to actually sit with us and resonate with us? How often do we allow it to put the rest of our lives into perspective and allow that burden of our everyday life to just, even just for a moment, be lifted off our shoulders? How often do we let ourselves just to soak in that gift of eternal life that God has given us? It's a gift that's just so beautiful, so eternal, so undeserved, all we can really do is just sit at the foot of the cross and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because we know it was all done for us, not by us. It was that free gift, that gift of grace. And all we need to do is just come and drink. And as I was thinking about how was I was going to actually finish this sermon, I thought that's a good place to finish, just to drink in the knowledge of and just the massiveness of the gift of Christ. And so I thought a good way to do this would be to just go through one of the Psalms. And this is Psalm uh, 23, and probably the most famous Psalm out there. But this concoction of words, I think, is just so beautiful. And so I just want us to drink as we go through this Psalm together to finish off. And so if you want to read it with me, I'm just going to read it slowly. By all means, do so. Or if you just want to sit there and be still and let the words wash over you and enjoy it, by all means, do that as well. And so Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.